Welcome to Sunday Night Dinner, a podcast that cooks. I'm Suzanne Hancock. I'm Claire Tanzi. So my book is called Uncomplicated, Taking the Stress Out of Home Cooking. It came out in October last year. And uh, it's 130 recipes of just easy, fun, delicious, regular food. Claire Tanzi is a chef, a teacher, and the former food director at Chatelaine, one of Canada's most popular magazines. She's worked in celebrated restaurants. She was a restaurant critic. But now she's focusing on inspiring home cooks with easy, fun, and delicious recipes. If you're a regular listener, you might have heard me mention that my mom hates cooking. Really hates it. I gave her a copy of Claire's book, and apparently she made three of the five-minute side dishes, and they were a great success. That's big for my mom. Claire's book is approachable, and it's inspiring. There are recipes for dishes like coconut chicken curry, broiled miso salmon, mushroom and asparagus frittata, five-minute vegetable sides, my mom's favorites, party dishes, and lots of delicious recipes for baked treats. You can find all kinds of tips and tricks on her website, clairetanzi.com, that's Claire with an I, and you can find her on the talk show City Line, the Toronto Star newspaper, and on CBC Radio. Sunday night dinner for her is huge, as you'll hear, and sometimes it means meatloaf. Claire's making the meatloaf recipe from her book. To find the recipe, head over to our website, sundaynightdinnerpodcast.com. What made you want to write the book? There are two things that made me want to write the book. The first was I have, uh, like I'm a food writer and I wanted something to write. Um, And I wanted something that was really my own. Um, I'd been working for other people for so long that it was a chance for me to actually capture and write about the recipes that I make, the recipes that I grew up with, um, and really the way that we cook in this house, in my house. Um, but then, so that was the kind of businessy personal side, but then the other piece, um, I see so much happening in the world, which is, which the the effect of which is that cooking seems really hard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you look at any food television or, uh, you know, all the, a lot of these fancy Instagram accounts, and it just looks like cooking is complicated that you, you know, you need to either yell a lot or have fancy equipment, or you need to know certain rules, or you have to have special knives or special ingredients. Um, and I think it leads to cooking seeming really intimidating, Mm -hmm. um, or complicated. And of course, I like that's just baloney, right? Because we've been cooking for ourselves for thousands of generations. We're humans. This is the reason we evolved into he- becoming human. And to sort of remember that cooking doesn't have to be all of that stuff. You can forget all of that noise, all of the fancy stuff, all the all the rules and regulations about salt and what kind of meat and buying organic and is it healthy for all that stuff. Just forget all that and just cook simple food that you like um, and take pleasure in it. So I kind of wanted to put my little stamp on it and say, this is really what I believe in. And I think that, uh, not to get too philosophical about it, but if you cook food for yourself and for your family or your friends, you are automatically going to be happier and healthier, um, not just in your in your health, in your body, um, but in your mental health, of course, in your budget, in your finances, um, your family, your community, the planet. Uh, and it has a huge, huge ripple effect for just making a pot of pasta. 
So in the meatloaf, it's, um, it's a mixture of ground beef and ground pork, equal parts. Then there's a small onion that's been grated, um, two cloves of garlic, also grated, two eggs, a half a cup of panko breadcrumbs, or you can use regular breadcrumbs, whatever you got, third of a cup of ketchup, favorite ingredient, quarter of a cup of chopped fresh parsley, a tablespoon of Worcestershire, a teaspoon of dried thyme, which is optional if there's somebody in your life who won't eat green stuff, a teaspoon of salt, and then two tablespoons of either HP sauce or extra ketchup just for the top. Fantastic. Okay, okay. let's do it. Let's get to it. Okay, so I got out the ginormous bowl here. So I'm just going to actually add everything pretty much to the bowl. So this is pork, ground pork. Did you grow up eating meatloaf? 100%, but I was very fussy and I didn't eat very much meat when I was little. Okay. So I didn't eat a lot of meatloaf, um, but it was definitely like in our kind of bi-weekly rotation at home. Yeah. Did that drive your mom crazy? That you wouldn't eat it? No. Okay. She was pretty chill about that. I'm the third kid. Um, so I think also it was the 70s, like mothers didn't care. <laughs> I remember being allowed to eat cold hot dogs out of the fridge. She didn't care. She didn't care. And also, it was also like, if you didn't eat it, then you didn't eat it. Like, it was no big deal. My sort of default backup meal was um, like what I would call now um, uh, like toasted cheese. Mm -hmm. A piece of toast in the toaster oven covered with some cheese. That was like, what kind of cheese? Velveeta? No, my mom wasn't a Velveeta gal. She was more of a hippie than a Velveeta. Oh, okay. So it would be like old cheddar. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. So you're just putting everything in that big bowl. Yes. And that's why I get the giant bowl because you need the big bowl. This is the time. Okay. So the meat is in. So then we're going to do some onion action. My sister was one of the recipe testers on this recipe. And I originally had asked for the onion to be finely chopped. Okay. And you know, in meatloaf, like if you have something that's not finely enough chopped, like it actually kind of messes up the texture. Like it'll mm -hmm. kind of start to crumble if the chunks are too big. So it was one of those times where I was like, oh, it's really got to be very finely chopped. Um, but since the book is called Uncomplicated, I didn't want anything to be, right. have to be so prescriptive about it. Right. And my sister lives in South Africa and she was testing the meatloaf and she said, well, why don't you just grate the onion? And I said, uh, I don't know, grated onion. Ooh, I don't know. It sounds scary. Um, but her husband is Indian and they grate onions all the time for things like curries. Like they grate everything. Everything goes through the grater and into the curry pot, like fresh tomatoes, everything. So I thought, okay, well, I'll try it. Actually, I think she tried it and she called me back to be like, yeah, it's delicious. Works out great. <laughs> so it was good. So instead of having to chop the onion really finely, you just have to grate it. And I actually take my good old fashioned box grater and just throw it right into the bowl okay. so that you don't have to even do that step of grating onto the cutting board. And of course, the only problem when you're grating something is you got to be careful of your fingers. Yes. Be careful of your fingers. And then I just, I, I left this stem end on as to be a handle and then I just stop. I leave a hunk of onion because I don't want to grate my fingers into there. Okay, it's really strong. You think chopping an onion is hard on your eyes? Grating it is way worse, way, way worse. Okay, so that's in there. Okay, so then garlic, a couple cloves of garlic. Oh, you see what I mean? Yes. Oh, yes. the onion is so strong. We're crying over Woo. Okay, hear that. <laughs> Okay, two cloves of garlic, 
And they're also going to be grated because since you don't have your knife out, you may as well just use not knife. get your knife out. You can use the box grater if you have a if it has a small side, but I really love my microplane for garlic. You could also just mince it in like if, okay. in a garlic press. Again, the idea is to get it almost pureed so that it just disappears into the meat. And that's one, to make sure that the texture stays this like nice and consistent, and two, to hide from discriminating six-year-olds who <laughs> won't eat chunks of stuff. Oh, I will have to chop the parsley. I'm sorry, I lied. You do have to get your knife out at some point. I apologize. That's okay. That's all right, that's all right. Okay, um, so got beef, got pork, got onion, got garlic, a couple of eggs. Two eggs. Would you say you're a clean chef? I am. I, I'm actually kind of freaking out because I've left the onions really? on, the, on the cutting board here. Not freaking out. I'm cool. Uh, I try to be. Like, yeah. I, I grew up in the restaurant. I grew up. I, mm -hmm. My first few jobs were in the restaurant business. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be clean. Yeah. Like, you have a foot, a cube, a square foot in front of you to do your entire mise en place for the whole day. So you really have to stay on top of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I try now to do that, to do the same. Okay. That was a really half-assed stir because we're not, we're not ready to stir yet. Okay. Half a cup of panko or dry breadcrumbs. Excellent. So I love panko. It's mm -hmm. what I normally have, but if you have breadcrumbs, just like your ordinary, um, whatever, seasoned yeah. breadcrumbs, that's also fine. Um, and the breadcrumbs, you know, the great thing about breadcrumbs is they do two things in the meatloaf. They tenderize it a little bit, but they also extend it a little bit. If you don't have breadcrumbs and eggs and stuff in there, I find the meatloaf gets a bit rubbery. That's also why I use a combination of beef and pork, because the pork has a kind of softness to it, whereas the beef can be quite tight uh, when it all cooks up. So it all comes together to make a really nice texture in the end. Now, ketchup, people tell me that they think ketchup is a cheating ingredient. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As is Worcestershire sauce, which is going in next. Um, so I just kind of like repudiate that. Like, I think that, first of all, I don't like to assign any kind of blamed any ingredients. <laughs> like they are, they're just, they're just ingredients. And the great thing about ketchup is it's got sweetness, it's got tanginess, it's got saltiness, it's got color. Um, and if I wasn't going to use ketchup, I would have to use some sugar or some honey. I'd have to get some yeah. tomato puree. It would make my life a lot more complicated. And obviously that's not what I'm inter interested in. And Worcestershire sauce, I remember somebody once said to me that the sign of a good, the sign of a bad cook is that they use Worcestershire sauce to add flavor. And I was like, that's so bizarre. Um, but of course, Worcestershire sauce has like anchovy in it. So like, it's almost like mm -hmm. a fish sauce. It has an umami. It has a richness. Do not shy away. It is so good. And it's irreplaceable. Um... And yes, it's high in salt, but get over it. Uh, okay, teaspoon of dried thyme. Oh my gosh, we're almost done. I should have turned the oven on. Turn the oven on, 325. So my six-year-old, almost seven-year-old, will not even look at a dish that actually has green stuff in it. So I sometimes have made this meatloaf without the parsley, mm -hmm. um, just to kind of try to convince him to have it. So I think I'm gonna actually do that tonight. Because just to say, you know what? If parsley is not your bag, uh, or you don't like green stuff, mm -hmm. then just skip it. You know, as we were, when we were expecting Thomas, I thought, oh, you know, I'm gonna make the baby food. I'm gonna stock the, like he's gonna be the best eater, all that stuff. And then of course this baby comes out and absolutely like slaps you on the bum because you're like, oh, you have your own opinions, right? 
And it seemed like the more time I put into some making some food for him, the less likely he was to eat it. There was a, the famous meatballs. One day he ate a meatball. I'm like, oh my God, he loves meatballs. So like I made 99 meatballs with them all you know, individually rolled and in the freezer. And, uh, you know, and the, of course he then refused to eat them, which is an old story, parents. Um, but it certainly, I knew that I was going to be very focused on food with him. Um, and I read a, a great book called Child of Mine, which is a very, very um, rational, calm philosophy about feeding children, which I knew I needed to internalize because mm-hmm. otherwise it would, like, this kid's going to be exposed to food and he's going to be exposed to two parents who love food and who spend a lot of emotional and financial resources on food. So I don't want him to get a complex about it. Um, so we have this really calm attitude. If he eats it, he eats it. If he doesn't, he doesn't. No big deal. There's no forcing, nothing like that. So I'm, I try to be chill with him about it, but I don't, wouldn't say it's really necessarily changed the way I cook. I had, I had quite uh, severe postpartum depression after I had him, and so I stopped eating for a long time, and that was a really red flag to me that I was like, oh, there's something really wrong with me if I'm not eating and not, like not cooking, you know, in that first year, yes, you don't have time to cook, yeah. but like also not having any desire to cook, that was a big sign for me, yeah, so it was good to get over that. Um, now, there's got to be salt in this recipe, and in fact there is, and it's a teaspoon. Um, which seems like a lot, but this is huge. Like we're making a whole loaf. Um, and I always use, um, in the entire book, I always use table salt um, as my salt measurement. Um, as you can see here, I also have Malden salt, kosher salt, there's Himalayan salt, there's truffle salt, there's everything bagel salt. Like I've got all the salts, but when it comes to recipes, I really wanted to use the thing, the ingredient that was the easiest to get, the most common, uh, the cheapest, the most consistent in terms of measurement. So okay. all salt is table salt. Okay. Um, I think in maybe three recipes in the book, I call for Malden salt, but it's only as a finishing, mm-hmm. um, maybe even only two recipes. So you don't, like, it's just one of those things. You think salt has to be a fancy ingredient. I get really upset about this, that people have this assumption that if, you, if you're a proper cook, you use fancy salt. But it, they just don't. Like, salt is salt. Just use salt. If you want to use sea salt because you think it's better for you, go for it. But just table salt. Okay, I'm going to grab a loaf pan. Okay, so at this point, there's just nothing for it. you got to go in there with your hands. This is why I love this recipe. It's five minutes to kind of stir it together. Yeah. You stir it in one bowl. Yeah. And then you plop it in a pan and chuck it in the oven, and it's totally uncomplicated. That's why it was so good for the book. All right, I smooth it into an even layer, tuck a little bit in there, and then I'm just gonna smear a bit of extra ketchup on top. So that's the fun part. So now uh, it's in the oven, and that means that you can clean up and maybe make a salad or make some mashed potatoes, and um, dinner's ready in an hour. Can you tell me about one of your favorite eating experiences? doesn't have to be necessarily the food, but maybe where you were or who you were with. Or... The first one that comes to mind, and I probably have about a thousand, yeah. um, but the first one that comes to mind is um, a few years ago, before we had Thomas, so I'm going to say like 2009, 2010, Michael and I were in England. Michael, my husband, mm-hmm. he's from England, so his whole family's there, so we go quite a bit. Um, but he also loves to eat and... He's the one who's always, you know, watching all the food shows and reading all the books, and he's really up on all that food stuff. 
And we, um, we decided we would take a little weekend away to Windsor, so in England. So we're, he's from the south coast. We're going either back up to London or I can't remember what. But we stopped in Windsor and just had a couple nights at a hotel there. Um, and it's just down the way from a tiny town called Bray, which is like this ridiculous center of Michelin three-star restaurants. So Heston Blumenthal's place is there and Michel Bra was there. So Heston Blumenthal of the Fat Duck, the Fat Duck is there, and he had recently opened a pub called the Heinz Head in that same village. So pub food is way more my style than Michelin three-star food. And the other thing at the Fat Duck, it's like 300 pounds a person, so quite expensive. So, and so I thought, well, it would be so perfect to go to the pub. And it was just like it was summertime, and we walked there. We both love to walk. It's like a 45-minute walk along the river. Um, and we go into the Heinz Head, and it's like your classic English pub, you know, vaulted ceiling, exposed beams, huge fireplace, just like so, so special. And I love to drink martinis, and I tried to order a martini, and they were like, oh, no, no, we don't have the stuff to make martinis. Like, it's a pub. They have beer. They had some wine, but they mostly had beer. It was great. Okay, so you had beer. Um, and then the, you have the food. And, I mean, Heston Blumenthal is just such a thoughtful chef. And a lot, he's really interested in historical recipes, which I'm also interested in mm-hmm. as well. Um, and he's he's just amazing. So we had his triple co- cooked chips, and we had all this beautiful food. But the dessert I had was called Quaking Pudding. And it's done authentically. He follows on an authentic, like, I think, 18th century recipe and it's pretty much just cream and eggs and nutmeg and sugar um and it's called quaking pudding because it kind of wiggles and wobbles when it comes to you but then you put your spoon into it and it's just the most incredible texture it's smooth and soft it's not rubbery it's like nursery food it's sweet and nutmeggy and comforting and just knowing the thought that the chef had put into it, that he'd done all this research and then he'd figured out a way to, like, and it was so humble in this beautiful place. Like, it was just one of those perfect moments. Awesome. <laughs> Tell me more about your interest in historical recipes. Where did that come from and what does that mean to you? Um, my mother says I'm very old. I have, I'm an old soul. Uh, and I, I think that one of the ways I got into it was that my mom has a collection of recipe cards from her mom okay. and from her mom's mom. And it's that, you know, that classic index card yeah. that's like the, the handwriting is so perfect. Yes. When you start going back another generation, then the recipes become like there's no instruction. It'll just say like bake in the usual way or my favorite one, which is my great grandmother's Christmas pudding, her plum pudding, which the instruction is tie in a sack, steam till cooked. It's like, okay, a sack. Great. Um, you know, and you think of like a Christmas pudding recipe today would be three pages yeah. long, like with detailed instructions on how finely to chop the peel and where to source the sack or what the alternative would be. Um, so I, I love the way that recipes show, like they offer you this little glimpse into what that life would have been like and what that person's life would have been like, that everybody knew how to cook Christmas pudding. You know, everybody had a sack for Christmas pudding. <laughs> And I think it's probably from that that I, I love to read recipes of a certain era and kind of gather what people's lives were like um, based on what the recipes say. I think that might be your next cookbook. You know what? Uh, when I originally wrote this book, I thought that would be my third book. Okay. Um, because I also think that there's something 
there's something so juicy for me about creating your family tree through recipes, like like literally what I said. Mm-hmm. So I know my mom's recipes. I know her mom's recipes. I'm trying to learn those. And I, I know my recipes. What recipes do I want my son to know from all those generations? And how do we kind of pass on our family legacies through recipes? Yeah. yeah. What about Sunday night dinner for you growing up and today? So huge, huge. Um, when I was a kid on Sunday night, my one of my grandmas would come to the house. So I grew up in Montreal in the suburbs, and all of my two my two grandmas both lived downtown. They were both very fabulous ladies, and they would take the train. One of them would take the train out. Um, typically, it was my dad's mom, my nana, who was a model, like worked at Hold Renfrew, like very fancy. She had her hair all done up. She was always wearing some kind of fabulous jumpsuit. She smoked menthol cigarettes. You know, her glass, she had tinted glasses. She had a fur coat, like she was fabulous. And she would come on a Sunday night, she'd take the train out and we'd have roast dinner. Okay. Um, you know, roast beef, mashed potatoes, vegetables, blah, blah, blah. My mom would usually make a pie. Uh, she's an amazing pastry maker and there'd be pie. And Anna would be there. And then um, while we were, like, children were, like, cleaning up and having to clear the table and the adults were in the other room, my Nana would usually sneak into the kitchen and would take, like, a couple pieces of bread and start slicing the roast beef or whatever and making herself a sandwich. She was, like, 98 pounds soaking wet. And she could eat, like, nobody's business. So she would eat another sandwich. Then she'd call for the peanut butter. And she'd be like, I'm going to have some peanut butter and bread. And then she'd put take another sandwich in her purse for the ride home. <laughs> she was amazing. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, truly like a tiny lady. It was, must have been the menthol cigarettes. <laughs> but it was just one of those things that it was our Sunday dinner. It was, um, you know, we ate in the dining room. Yeah. Uh, I feel like there was probably a tablecloth and candles. Mom would usually use the good china from her wedding. Um, it was almost always roast dinner. Uh, and it was a family event. Wow. Yeah. And what about these days? What about your house here? So um, for whatever reason, the tradition continues. Um, So my husband is English, and for him, Sunday roast is basically a right to citizenship. Um, So it's roast pork, roast chicken, roast beef, whatever it is, roast potatoes, vegetables, um, a meal that we sort of, we often will spend a lot of the day preparing, but because we both love to cook, it's a pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. So he'll, he usually does the meat and potatoes. I do the veg. Sometimes I do the dessert. And then it's a little bit earlier on a Sunday evening. So we would eat around five and we have our little son and we all eat together. And it's just, um, it's, it's our usual thing. It's a Sunday. To, it's also great to invite people. So often we'll have people over for Sunday dinner. Um, it's just, it's one of our family traditions. You know, we don't have all, we don't, we're not in a church or anything. So it's not like we have any kind of weekly ritual in that sense but our weekly ritual really is Sunday dinner we were invited for dinner the other night but it was a very last minute thing to friends two couples who we know well we all have children the same age and uh you know it's a long weekend so it was the Sunday of a long weekend so nobody has anywhere to go the next day they just made burgers and like bag salad and it reminded me of how just how special it is to be with people around food. And it does not have to be fancy food. You know, like it was that we had a bag of sour cream and onion chips in a bowl uh, while we had a glass of wine. Then we literally had burgers and a bag of salad. No dessert, no nothing. But like just this, the, the most wonderful times together, you know, laughing and 
sharing stories and someone saying something inappropriate and all that stuff. And it's those, though, that's what I think of as the magic in life is those, those special times together. Um, and I think people don't invite us over a lot because we love to entertain and we love to cook and they probably think, Oh, well, what would we serve these two mm. people? But honestly, it has nothing to do with the food. You'd think a food person wouldn't say that, but it has nothing to do with the food. Yeah. It's about sitting together and sharing that time together. So, um, my big wish is to encourage people and to empower people to just have people over, like embrace those moments or just with your own family, just sit down. We sit down and have dinner together every night. The three of us, no screens, no games, no toys, no nothing. Sometimes it's very boring, but you know, there's that magic stuff that will happen um, in quiet conversations with each other. And it's, I think, I think it's worth it to, to look for those opportunities. The meatloaf was in the oven for just over an hour and it came out looking like the perfect Sunday night dinner. Claire was gonna serve it that night with salad for those who like green things and mashed potatoes. It's an easy recipe to master, and the result is a classic. Big thanks to Claire Tanzi for opening up her kitchen to me and for talking about her book, some of her food memories, and for making meatloaf. Find Claire at clairetanzi.com. Again, that's Claire with an I. And you can find links to Claire's work over on our website, sundaynightdinnerpodcast.com. And make sure to check out her book, Uncomplicated, Taking the Stress Out of Home Cooking. It's a gem. Music for the show is created by the super awesome J.J. Ibsen. Thanks so much for listening. See you soon.